Welcome to Stories from the Space Between, a podcast from the Space Between, Literature and Culture, 1914 to 1945. You can find us at spacebetweensociety.org. I'm Michael McCluskey. Today we have Kristen Blumel. Kristen is Professor of English and the Wayne D. McMurray Endowed Chair in the Humanities at Monmouth University. She's the author of books on Dorothy Richardson and George Orwell, the editor of a collection on intermodernism, and co-editor of 2018's Rural Modernity in Britain, A Critical Intervention, a book that we did together and with some, with some excellent contributors. She most recently edited Blitz Writing for the Handheld Press, a book that brings together Inez Holden's Night Shift, and it was different at the time. Kristen is a, a founding member of The Space Between. What I say, yeah, founding member of the space between. Um, and it occurs to me at some point, maybe we should have an episode explaining the, the organization and, and its start. Um, but for now, Kristen. Hello, everyone. My story from the space between is about Gwen Robert, the English artist, wood engraver, and book illustrator who was famous for leading the wood engraving revival in interwar England. She was born in 1885 to Sir George. Darwin, the astronomer son of Charles Darwin, and is almost as famous for her 1952 memoir of her childhood among the Cambridge Darwins as she is for her art. And she died in Cambridge in 1915, excuse me, 1957, right outside the boundary of our space between. And she, so she's Darwin's granddaughter. Darwin's granddaughter. And spent most of her life in Cambridge? she was really associated with Cambridge. She is buried in Cambridge. She was born um, and grew up in something called the Granary, which was affiliated with what's now Newnham College in, in Cambridge. Um, her numerous aunts, uncles, cousins are all part of her memories and part of her childhood. But as an artist, she is famous for her affiliation with the Cambridge group of, quote, neo-pagans. And oh. these were young folk who gathered around the gorgeous poet Rupert Brooke, who right. died in 1915. That's my 1915 date. Um, and among these folks, she met the man who was to become her husband, a Frenchman who was a mathematician who was studying for one year at Cambridge. And she persuaded him to join her at the Slade School of Art. Um, and they got married in 1911. Okay. So her life went on from there, but that's kind of a, an introduction, at least, to her Cambridge origins right. and associations. Okay, so she goes off to the Slade, which is the, the, the famous school of art, now part of, of University College London. Um, and she's there to study wood engraving. She picks up wood engraving. She had been a wood engraver. What, what was her experience like at the Slade? Um, but also, what was wood engraving like in this period? It seems to me it might not have been seen as the most modern art form, or, or was it, actually? So there are several very good questions embedded there, <laughs> so I'll try to tackle them one by one. She went to the Slade to study art as a painter, as a drawer, as a draftsman or woman, uh, and she happened upon wood engraving and taught herself wood engraving. Um, so that was something that was seen as a, a lesser craft, not an art, uh, particularly when she was there before World War One. 
and the period of the space between, we're looking at the interwar years, and that's the period that Gwen Ravarat rose to prominence within the English art scene, but also the English book scene. So your question about wood engraving as either modern or old-fashioned, for me, really hinges on the book, which is why an English professor like me can actually pursue what might be seen as an art history kind of line of research. Um, books with wood engravings in the 19th century, at, towards the end of the 19th century, when, when in fact, when, when Gwen was born in 1885, that was the period of the huge workshops, these engraving workshops, where men and a few women really just sat there hour after hour getting worse and worse eyesight as they tried to engrave on blocks the designs of other artists. They were not themselves artists. They were almost like the human extent. They were the human machine. They were the reproducers. And they are largely anonymous. They don't get any credit in the art history books. But as an institutional form or, or process, they're really important in the history of wood engraving. But everybody in our kind of community is going to know about William Morris and the fine art, private press, right? Kelmscott Press, the beautiful wood engraved books that came out of the private press at the end of the 19th century. So you have the mass workshop engravers who are cranking out their book and magazine and newspaper illustrations. And you have the very elite private presses whose artists are designing and reproducing a often largely decorative wood engraving for very expensive books for collectors. So Gwen Ronrot is modern because she's not doing either of those things. Hmm. She's part of an emerging group of artists who discovered wood engraving as an autonomous art form, which means they themselves designed, often painted the illustrations or the images that they wanted to then carve or engrave onto the wooden blocks, which would then in reverse be printed onto paper and sold as prints or if you actually wanted to survive and earn some money as illustrations in books. And now when when you when I first learned about your work and, and learned about wood engravers like when Ravarat, I, I suddenly started noticing when I would look at books published in the 1920s, 1930s, so many of them would have a wood engraving, either wood graved uh, illustrations or even just on the, on the title page. Um, so it seemed to me like there, there, it did become an interwar, a space between trend um, um, in publishing. And that could be where, where wood engraving becomes modern. I mean, was it seen as something that publishers wanted to have that that was a particular style that they wanted to adopt to be seen, to be seen as modern or were there just artists like when, Ravarat that they wanted to work with, that they wanted to include as part of the publishing process? I think that's actually a really complicated question because as a, as a kind of phenomenon of interwar publishing where wood engraving becomes a desirable and attractive illustration process in books, and this is important in books for adults, but also children, which is, I want to get to the whole children book part. All right, so that could be considered modern, but I think it really divides along the lines of modern process versus modernist form. So there were wood engravers, for example, Eric Gill, who we've all heard about, who were 
seen as um, both private press, but also he did a few unlimited general press books, but also prints, but designs. He did sculpture. He was he was everywhere. Typography, and he was so prominent that he his work was seen as modern slash modernist. But the appeal of so many of the wood engravers and those happens that interest me um, were attractive because they weren't modernist. <laughs> that's Melius, that's one of my claims. That's one of the things that interests me. They were illustrating scenes that struck their readers as either as nostalgic, mm-hmm. as recalling ye old England English countryside which of course there's a resurgence, as you know very well, about the cult of the countryside mm-hmm. in interwar England. So they were part of that cult and that just fascination with the countryside, a component of which was nostalgic and could be extremely conservative and regressive. So this that, type... Go ahead. So, go ahead. So, so, so this type of work was part of that sort of resurgence, the interest in craft right? The interest in craft work, that sort of um, these skills that are disappearing. And you get young or youngish artists who in part want to preserve these processes, but also sort of distinguish themselves, I would suppose. So, so was, was Gwen, and I'm thinking of, of, of potters and, and weavers. Um, and, Hair and cleaners, mm-hmm. leaf turners, the whole, yeah. Right. So, so was she part of... So that's that's sort of the story of, of, of wood engraving and this craft resurgence. And Gwen Ravrat is certainly part of that. Was she specifically, though, part of any, other than the neo-pagans, was she part of any other artist group, something at Bloomsbury? Or you mentioned Eric Gill, prominent and problematic, mm-hmm. um, it, down in Ditchling, right? And he has a group of, of artists in Ditchling. Uh, was she part of any of those, um, not necessarily formal, but any of those recognizable groupings? She was ancillary to the Bloomsbury group. And oh. I say ancillary because she had connections with Virginia Woolf. And there's an interesting, again, private press book um, edited by William Pryor, who, let's see, is her grandson? Anyway, the immaterial, I'd have to... Yeah, grandson. I think it's her daughter's child son. And... Put a book on her, I think, yeah. He has edited the correspondence between Virginia Woolf, Jacques Ravarat, and Gwen Ravarat. And that's an interesting uh, document, because in it you see Virginia Woolf feeling much more intimate with Jacques Ravarat. Um, and the Ravarats, uh, again, after World War I uh, in 1920, they had returned to France. So Jacques was sick. He had multiple sclerosis. He would have a degenerative, painful, agonizing, long last illness and then death that Gwen tended him through. And he died in 1925. So the years of high modernism in Britain and France and elsewhere, but we think of English modernism as, you know, the highlight of 1922. Well, what was Gwen Robert? Where was she? She was in France with her husband and her two daughters. She was living near his family. Yes, she was wood engraving and doing some beautiful prints of the local French scenes, but she was really not part of a artist community there. She was receiving occasional letters from Virginia Woolf and from her family members, but what we have 
readily available is in William Pryor's edition, evidence of how Wolf would, Virginia Woolf would promise that she was going to come and visit and support and never did. Always managed never quite to arrive. So it's, um, and the, and the terms she uses to describe Gwen Ravarat are kind of curious. She, she compares her to monoliths, to stone, um, her, for an, compares Gwen. Her personnel to her, not her, her work. Her physical self. Right. So here's a wood engraver and artist who's actually being kind of transformed in the Wolfian metaphor, Wolfian um, diction to to stone herself. So it, it was, um, I did a little minor project of, of a, a conference paper at the Wolf Society once where I, I really examined pretty closely the, the relationship between these two women. But Gwen could not be considered a Bloomsbury, even though she went there after Jacques died and she tried to retreat and kind of gather her bereaved self together and, and regroup. But she really ended up in Cambridge and her memoir period piece, which came out in 1952 is considered a quote, minor classic. That's a phrase I love to examine minor classic, Mm -hmm. but she had had a stroke in 1951 and couldn't engrave after that. And, but as she was composing her memoir, she was doodling, she was doing black and ink, um, black ink, doodles that accompany it and it's a wonderful book but it makes Glenn Robert of Cambridge not of Bloomsbury not of Virginia Woolf not of Roger Fry it's a it's a different kind of community and it's a because it's a childhood memoir the issues of nostalgia again come into it the issues of what was Cambridge back in the late 1880s and early 1890s and it's kind of a rural spot and it, it, it's uh so this is part of the interest that i have also in how the artist remembers her childhood and childhood memoirs are often nostalgic how does nostalgia play then in discourses about her art in her written memoirs about becoming an artist it's all it's all very interesting kind of alternative to urban modernism right and that's where i see it as a depression era and then obviously the memoir is post-war but the art itself and the publications particularly her children's books were of the depression and um distinct in their modern interventions so so cambridge part of a, a known family a famous family uh the slade you know famous art school london mary's um, sad times in France, and then returns to Cambridge. And as you say, 1952, she publishes Period Piece, which would be a great, it sounds like a great resource um, for, for people interested, not just in wood engraving, not just in Gwen Ravarat, but Cambridge at a certain period, um, the UK at a certain period in time. So a fascinating biography. If we could get now in, into the specifics of her work, um, which you just touched on. So how, she, she gets into children's uh, literature are those her her first commissions? Um, is she interested in in children's literature? Or how does that relationship develop? If we turn now to her her career, her publications, what we can see, what we can get our hands on. And I think this is the turn I want to make because I've been still trying to sort out where my interest in the space between and literary culture turns into an interest in book history, children's literature, which is what's happened. And the answer actually is that I, 
started indulging my own delight in illustrated children's books. And I had just purchased this lovely Victoria and Albert Museum co-published edition of, it was called, I think, the, it's, um, the History of Children's Book Illustration. And it was co-edited by two art historians in England. One is named uh, Joyce Irene Whaley and another is Tessa Rose Chester. And I was interested particularly in what was happening in the Depression years and the World War years, the space between years. And they're kind of defeatist, not defeatist. They're rather grim chapters, as you can imagine, because the beautiful kind of turn of the century, um, Arthur Rackham, Aubrey Beardsley um, illustration that was expensive to produce. Right. Disappears. Okay. It disappears with the Depression. And of course, World War II, everybody's getting bombed. There's hardly any paper for anything to get printed on. That, that becomes a, a, a vague memory of a dim past. So well, what did happen in the interwar period, the, the area of innovation was in wood engraved illustrations. And these um, art historians who co-wrote and then um, compiled this edition, they um, talk about Agnes Miller Parker, Joan Hassel, and Gwen Ravarat as the most innovative children's book illustrators of the Depression. And I thought, huh, wood engraving, what an odd thing. And they're, you know, they illustrate it with pictures of animals and um, images from Gwen Ravarat's Cambridge um, edition of poems, which had been edited and compiled by Kenneth Graham, the author of The Wind and the Willows, a famously rural book. Um, first published earlier in the century. So Gwen Robert came to the public attention in a mass-produced, general-release, non-private edition, relatively inexpensive, okay. or a book for kids, her collection of um, the Cambridge Book of Poetry for Children. Okay. And after that, she was in demand continuously as an illustrator for books, not always children's books but usually books that had a rural thematic. Okay, so if there's an economic... It, it did, now, did Kenneth Graham, is he the one who, who found her? I mean, how did, how did... No, no, his... Let's see, his book, I think... I'm not going to... Don't... You know, this is... I'm not claiming accuracy here. That book first came out with other illustrations by another illustrator whose name I don't... I don't know her work. I actually don't... I don't know that book. But he had put the book together earlier, like in 1908 or something right, like okay. that. And then it came out in addition. It was interesting. It kind of came out in addition around pre-World War One, World War One, and then 1932 is when Ravarat's edition. Um, so Graham didn't have involvement with Ravarat, but what really interests me is that it's Cambridge University Press. And most of us look at that imprint, that that publisher and right. Wow, I'd love to have my scholarly book published by Cambridge University Press. It's really prestigious. What's going on with the whole children's lit thing, right? So at least those are the questions I asked. And I was trying to understand the history of the press in relation to its children's literature division and history of publishing. Because Robert published other things with Cambridge. And her other publisher was Faber and Faber, which is famously a modernist house that had, of course, T.S. Eliot um, editing in the background. So I was interested in questions of prestige because Children's Lit has virtually no prestige. Wood engraving, when Gwen Ravarat took it up, 
had no prestige. It was considered a craft, not an art. It wasn't even taught oftentimes at the Slade or it wasn't taught at the Royal Academy. So people were picking it up on the side. And then had the other problem of being nostalgic and old fashioned. So it wasn't seen as modernist or cutting edge. It wasn't and seen yet, at a moment. Yet at the, the, what you're hitting on is a moment where all of these do come together and, and also come together in a way that makes us question all the terms, you know, art, craft, modern, modernist, um, especially. And also gender, also the, what, what difference does it make that mm. the three illustrators who are named to that single text on children's illustration as being at the forefront of innovative children's book illustration in the 1930s, it can't be circumstance that they're women, given the prominence of male artists prior to that period. Important. Yeah. So then I'm like, well, they finally got to go to art school. That's right. <laughs> you know, do your math, you know. And the Slade had admitted women students prior previously, but women as a population, they, they didn't get the same art education. They couldn't go to any live drawing classes, right? God forbid there was a nude model in front of them. So whatever art, if they were admitted to art school, it was often in very limited or kind of ancillary fashion. So I, I like, oh, well, this is kind of cool. So these women artists finally can try to make money through their art. And isn't it interesting that these women have chosen a com what's traditionally a commercial art form, unless it's in the private press, but their books are going out to children, a non-prestige readership, not very critical, right? Mm -hmm. Kids and just sit on the parents' lap and want to have a nice little nursery rhyme So who, and so let's get into the other, because I was going to ask you, Gwen Ravrat is maybe perhaps the best known of, of these um, uh, women artists, wood engravers. Who else was working at the time? You know, did she know them? But who else? Who, who if you could uh, take us back to the names that you mentioned, um, Agnes yeah. and, and let's and, and talk a bit about who who else was doing wood engraving. Who are who are these other women artists that that we should all know about? Because it's not just about as you've done so so wonderfully as you told us so wonderfully. This isn't just about children's books or wood engraving, right? Or or publishing. It's all of these and so much more. Right. So part of what interested me was the fact that these were women artists or maybe that just became no it's still a, it's a it's a thread it's definitely an organizing kind of conceptual thread for my research and so the other women wood engravers who I was interested in because they were publishing frequently in commercial therefore cheaper unlimited editions that were available to the broad swath of the public included Agnes Miller Parker who is from Scotland um, Joan Hassel, the youngest, she was born 19, Hassel was born 1906. So she's a little bit, she's kind of of the George Orwell, Stevie Smith generation. Okay. Um, and she was born into an artistic family. Her father, John Hassel actually had an art school. He was called the poster king of the Victorian period. A very interesting character. Um, like the opposite kind of character than his daughter. But there you have a woman kind of living into the profession, the art profession of her father. And then the other artist who interests me is Claire Layton. And Claire Layton rather famously wrote her own memoir of growing up in the household of her mother, um, Marie Layton, who is a romance novelist and a real force of nature. 
Um, and Claire Layton's also famous because of her family relations. Her brother Roland was the fiance of Vera Britton, who wrote about his death in the trenches of World War I, um, famously in Testament of Youth. So those are the four women who interest me. If you just once again, Gwen Ravarot, Agnes Miller. Agnes Miller Parker, the only um, non-English woman, the only Scott, Scottish woman. Um, Joan Hassel, English woman, daughter of an artist, and Claire Layton, who is the daughter of two writers. Her, her dad, who was, I guess, hearing impaired slash deaf, um, he wrote Westerns. Oh. I know. <laughs> anyway, her, her, not, her, her memoir is called Tempestuous Petticoat. Which <laughs> <is a> <laughs> She's really writing about her mother, her childhood in um, St. John's Wood. And... Uh, so again, another another figure like like Gwen Ravrat, where there's it's, it's so much more than just tapping into her life, studying her her life or her her artwork brings together so many interesting strands, not just of of the space between of the years that we're looking right. at, but but but, but before but, and, and after. And let me give you some other names of male wood engravers who are probably going to be more familiar to your listeners. They include, as I've mentioned before, Eric Gill, but also Paul Nash, John Nash. Eric Revilius, um, who am I leaving out here as among the most familiar? Robert Gibbings, I don't, you'd kind of have to be wonky about wood engraving to know that name, um, but they include Blair Hughes Stanton, Douglas Percy Bliss, Reynolds Stone, and then also the artist and painter Edward Wadsworth did some oh, right. striking wood engraving. So those are some names that um, might come up in studies or in casual kind of searching around for the interwar period. And they were so numerous and so popular that it became known as the, quote, wood engraving revival. Right? And revival itself is kind of an interesting notion because it means you've taken something that's died and you've brought it back to life and revived it. But that means its legacy and whatever it was, whatever died, is being brought back to life. How, to what extent is it new? To what extent does it have a future? So there's some very interesting questions around the autonomy of wood engraving as an art practice. And, and this is, practice. and we're thinking the night, this is the 1930s would be the wood graving uh, yeah. revival. And, and Gwen Robert was one of the co-founders in 1920 of the Society of Wood Engravers. And she was active and kind of the presiding matron of many of their meetings for decades. In fact, that group became known as the kind of stodgy group. And there were some, upstarts who followed, particularly an um, artist named Leon Underwood, who in 1925 founded a kind of not rival, but alternate, more experimental, more modernist group called the English Wooden, what was it? It was the um, English Wood Engravers Society. So it was you know, very subtle and they would often have showings in different galleries, but sometimes each member of each group would you know, show with the other group. Um, but it shows that with, it was a big enough thing to have kind of rival styles and rival communities. Um, in and rival that personalities, I could imagine. And rival personalities, yeah. So, I mean, Eric Gill, probably the, the best known, but but also, and in, in terms of the, the men you just mentioned, uh, Revilius, um, brilliant work, very rural. And so if we could get back to that, wood engraving, 
attached to nostalgia, attached to the countryside, the women, um, Gwen Ravarat and the others uh, the, that you that you talked about, are they all working on the same material? Meaning, are they all doing rural subjects? Um, how do they? How do they? You mentioned there was a you know distinct. Um, there were divisions within this society. So I'm wondering if we look at Gwen Ravrat against the, the other women or alongside the other women you mentioned, how did they distinguish themselves? What was different, um, you know, in their work? Was it, was it style? Was it subject matter? And I'm curious to know, were they doing other, other topics other than rural imagery and countryside imagery? Certainly Claire Layton. She is unusual among those four women who I've studied in having a real progressive politics that motivated both her practice and her publication and her choice of commissions. So she emigrated to the U.S. She went down south. She was affiliated with Duke University in a folklore project for many years. She taught at Duke. She went around the rural areas of the south and um, has an art that reflects her commitment to the poor working person which is consistent with what she did in England back in the interwar period. She was in, she had um, some books that came out with uh, Victor Golins's press, which were of course mass marketed. She is the one who really gains credit for being the first wood engraver since, I don't know, Thomas Buick in the 18th century or something to really only work in a unlimited mass market context. She did no work for private presses. She did no elite publication. And she has a very famous um, wood engraving called The Breadline, which is New York during the Depression. So her scene is urban. There were plenty of wood engravers who loved the geometry of urban architecture, but most of the kind of iconic images are rural. And the women who interest me, I've trying to, I've finally figured out that I, I think what compels me is narrative, visual narrative. So an illustration that might be created to accompany a story, right? Thus the entry into books or a poem, but an illustration that itself tells a story. So a more narrative art as opposed to a decorative art. And some of the more like David Jones or... Um, Aurelius, his, his, his art tells stories, but Gill, certainly, there are more decorative, more abstract kinds of wood engraving, including Gertrude Hermes, who's a friend, also Scottish, and a friend of Agnes Miller Parker. Um, and she, I was reading a book recently that was just trying to convince me, that was the, the claim of the author, was that Gertrude Hermes was the best wood engraver, the most ingenious wood engraver of the period. And I just don't connect. Like, well, and like, why is it? Why do I not see it? Why don't I really, I, you know, I studied Dorothy Richardson. I like experimental grows. It's my thing. I can do this. And it just doesn't move me. And I think it's my, my, what was it in grad school? We talked about, are you a my niece's junkie? <laughs> so are they are they purposely being experimental, Gwen Ravarat? I mean, we talked about the idea of the revival. We talked about um, Buick, who again is is the other big name in terms of the history of, of wood engraving. So in this revival with these women artists, are 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 they doing their own work and 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 making money and making art? Um, but part of that is, are they trying to 
uh, to bring up the phrase, are they also trying to make it new? I'm going to, well, probably there are a dozen art historians out there who would jump on me and disagree. I would say no. Um, and I'm going to give you the example of Agnes Miller Parker. Uh, she's born a couple of years after Gwen Robert and again, went based in her education in Glasgow before she moved with her then husband, William McCants, to London. She and her husband were known as part of the, quote, Chiswick group of kind of cubist, vorticist artists. And if you look at her early, and she also was self-taught wood engraver, and her wood engravings are much more along the lines of what we would consider modernist, experimental, abstract mm. art, experimenting with light and dark. And then she becomes what we might say more conservative, more realistic, yet more modern. What is it? Right. So her practice goes from something that we would say is more conventionally modernist when she's a younger artist. And the more she matures, the less she's trying to challenge people with overt abstract design. She's a master of light and shadow, use of line, silvery tones that emerge from her wood engravings. And that's what made her famous, not the early Vortices stuff. And what, who, what was her name again? That's Agnes Miller Parker. This is Agnes Miller Scottish Parker. Woman, right. right mm-hmm. Scottish woman. And again, all the specialist studies, all the art historians, ooh, Agnes Miller Parker, they would know her name right off. And, right, and she right. Here. But what I'm interested in is that kind of transition from a 1920s, what we would consider more abstract, more modern, right. to something where she's not trying to, her experiment is going in a different direction and she's pursuing other lines of thought. Now, part of it was dependent on commission. Agnes Miller Parker was a professional artist. She earned her living through her art. Prince didn't pay. If she didn't have a book illustration gig lined up, she didn't have much of an income. She would do some in, um, advertising, but it was so if, if, if a publisher approached her and said, for example, Golan's, oh, Agnes, would you illustrate this book by H.E. Bates, a very popular interwar rural novelist? Um, and these were kind of nonfiction narratives about one was called Through the Woods and the Other Down um, the River. So wood scenes, river scenes, nature scenes, windmills, she'll do a lovely job. But she's partly she's been constrained by the commission that she's accepted. Right, right. This it, it, it's representative. I mean, it's it's her work, but it may not be representative of of her her own motivations, her own interests. You know, she may have wanted to pursue and and may have done, and, and there might be other. But I think this was the expression of her yeah. artistic inspiration. For example, she identified with rural places, and she retired. She escaped her husband finally after many, many decades of abusive marriage. And she went with her brothers back to Glasgow. And eventually she moved to an island, um, uh, the island of Iran off A-R-R-A-N. Scott's yeah, among Aran. the people yep. spelling, but it's right. It's, it's off the coast of Scotland. Um, and that's where she wanted. And, and her friends like, Oh, don't hide out. Come back to Liz Agnes. And she, no, I love to swim. I want a boat. I want to be on my island. This is great. <laughs> so, so we corresponded. And, and in her letters and writings, you can see how responsive she was to the environment, to the plants, to the animals. She didn't like going to London. Um, so I don't think she was only constrained by her commission. Right, okay. That she took whatever artistic inspiration and pursued 
rural topics in a way that made sense to both her publishers, her large and enthusiastic readership, but also her artistic self. It just doesn't make sense to modernist scholars or our historians who are interested in modernist art. So she falls through the, the, the cracks and, and is invisible in ways that even Gwen Rovrat isn't because Agnes Miller Parker had no Darwin name and no memoir, right? She wasn't a writer. We don't have much writing from Agnes Miller Parker. We have very, very little. And so is that one... And so I, I was going to ask, because Gwen Rovrat I, I had heard of before, um, I, I learned of, of your work, but not really. It was a name I recognized. With the other ones, I had no, no recognition. Is that, I mean, are they well known? It seems to be you touched on part of your project might be to reclaim, um, to put these, these women. They may not be known in terms of, of art historical, uh, among art historians, perhaps. Um, but it seems like, again, your story is this is more than just art history. Right. Which is where, like, what does this have to do with the space between, well, this is what generated my ideas about rural, well, actually generated the ideas about rural England in the Depression period and what the kind of experiences of modernity might be in that geographical setting had to do with the responses I got from expert readers to my initial submissions of drafts of art or drafts of articles to publications and both to children's lit publications, but also to modernist publications, Mm -hmm. there's this readerly resistance to the notion that these women could be doing anything other than complying with a conservative heritage, um, kind of Stanley Baldwin-like to a deplorable politics. organic community. Little Englandism and xenophobia and all the nasty bits Mm -hmm. that people can associate with rural places. And I thought, well, that's not fair. <laughs> we're doing something really brave and unusual and going to art school in the first place. And they're pursuing their own dreams. And by the way, they're finding a way to earn a living, right? All of them, Robert's widow, as a youngish woman, the other three didn't marry. They had no massive trust funds. They were earning their way as professional artists and wood engravers at that. It's, a, it's a, an extraordinary kind of gesture of faith in your own talent and technique and the modern economy to support you. Um, Well, that's got to be part of the story of our modernity and integral to it is the love of the country that all these women had and the way they use their experience in the country to enter their art and to shape their art. And that's where Thomas Buick comes in. They were all inspired by Buick. They were not all, Robert was not stylistically akin to Buick. She pursued her own style. Um, but Buick also had done a bunch of illustration back in the 18th century, a very narrative style of illustration on amused children, was devoted to children's reading and children's education. Um, so that's a part of the story, too. And, you know, Buick wasn't ever accused of being some kind of conservative heritage. He is a heritage, right? <laughs> but he was a radical. He was on the side of the common working man and he was sympathetic to the American colonists who were rebelling. And um, he doesn't suffer the same way the women have, obviously, because of his historical displacement into the time of enclosure when rural England was under reorganization and political attack by really oppressive governing imperialist kind of forces. Mm-hmm. Now, and your this research is taking you uh, in new directions physically. Um, 
where could you tell us about your your upcoming opportunity and then where are you going with this research both again physically but uh in in terms of publications what the book project well, all those initial kind of skeptical readers reports i right determined me i gotta figure this out there's something going on here i know i'm not entirely wrong so that led me to try to construct a book project or a series of articles, you know, trying to do more book historical research to strengthen my claims about the more alternative modern context that would help us make sense of these women's art in terms of a space between, you know, nearly atomic age <laughs> moment in English history. But that, so that was the forward look, but the backward look was to Thomas Buick. And Thomas Buick grew up in a little country farm on the Tyne, south bank of the Tyne River. Um, and he spent his adult artistic years as an engraver in Newcastle. Okay. So rural England back in the late 1700s, early 1800s was really proximate to this massive coal um, industry center of Newcastle, England. And so industry and agriculture city and country and Buick's work and his history were really uh, interwoven. Mm -hmm. So my research on the women wood engravers as children's book illustrators and children's literature led me to Buick, which led me to Newcastle, which all of which in the meantime led me to you. And we did our book, our co-edited collection of rural modernity. But then that led me more deeply into children's lit. I started giving papers on Thomas Buick's illustration in his importance to children's literature. And that led me to scholar Matthew Grenby, who's at Newcastle University. And he invited me to apply for a labor Hume scholarship, which will take me, we hope, COVID willing, in January, 2022, to Newcastle University, where all these things are supposed to come together in some kind of coherent way. <laughs> <laughs> studying Thomas Buick, giving papers on Thomas Buick, giving papers to scholars and uh, the public on children's lit, talking about Gwen Ravarat and the other women gravers as modernist or modern inheritors of that storytelling rural tradition, and working on interdisciplinary projects on rural modernity with a bunch of geographers and economists and historians and other folk who are active around these centers in Newcastle devoted to that. Excellent. So you'll be there from January. So this is 2022, a year from now. What, from January to, to March? June. To June. Oh, oh Six wow. Months. And then if everything plays out and I can actually manage to orchestrate things, um, I'll return in October 2022. My goal is to get graduate students to lead on a symposium on children and modern culture. So what I really want... <laughs> It's what I really want is to bring together other scholars who are interested in modernism and children's lit, which are two fields that have been very, very hard to bring together. Mm. Even though they're really developing in parallel lines and have a lot of interconnections, but it's like, wow, Mars and Earth, they just don't talk. <laughs> and um, so my hope is that I can get grad students at Newcastle. Newcastle is a very strong children's lit and a strong modernist studies literature kind of area. And if I can get these younger scholars interested in the way these two fields come together, I think it would be really, really cool. We could have an invited speakers. We could have a full-day symposium. We could have maybe an issue of a journal thereafter that would be a consequent upon this. 
So if I pull off the symposium, I'll be going back to Newcastle in October 2022 to uh, help, you know, kind of coordinate and see through this this idea I have, and then um, would want to follow up with editing a special issue for a journal. Oh, excellent. So everyone at, at BAMS, the British Association of Modernist Studies, and I know there's the Northern Modernism Seminar, you'll be uh, active. For, so, so you'll be on the road, so to speak, giving, giving talks on, on bits of this research and also looking ahead to, to coalescing a group of, of uh, interested yeah. researchers. And um, what I'm going to do, I'm actually trying to start now with, I'm going to talk to Matthew Grenby about what process I would need to pursue to start articulating a call, right? You can't just pounce on people within three months and say, hey, show up to a symposium. You had to plan a year and a half. I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> I need to get going. I've only been to Newcastle <laughs> once in my life and I still have to start coordinating with people in that department and, and trying to find ways to bring, and I, I would love to have topics like playgrounds and uh, you know child not just literature not just art but really looking at the culture around childhood as it changed with a modernizing britain excellent so, so lots of opportunities to people for people to get involved um and and they can they'll be able to find you um via monmouth university and on twitter i believe you're yeah, at um, i'm at Kristen capital k Kristen capital b b now um, and I know that you'll have a book coming out at some point. Well, I have to get work. somebody to take that it. I have to write stuff. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's that But that will be the next, you know, other than getting involved and, and seeing what Kristen's doing next year. Um, at some point, there'll be a, a book about all this work that ties together those strands brilliantly and seamlessly, uh, I'm sure. So we'll have that to look forward to, uh, perhaps for another for another episode. So thank you, Kristen, and thank you all for listening. Uh, please follow us and find more information about the podcast and the organization at spacebetweensociety.org and on Twitter at spacebetweenj, the J for our journal, which has more great content and more stories from the space between. <laughs>